Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we're going to explore the awakening of Kundalini. My guest is Professor Marjorie Woolicott, who has been a neuroscience professor at the University of Oregon for more than three decades, and she has authored over 180 peer-reviewed scientific papers. She's also been a meditator for almost four decades. She is the author of Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind, which won the Book Award from the Parapsychological Association. In addition, she is the co-author of this book, a, a scientific text called Motor Control, Theory, and Practical Applications. This is an Internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the Internet video. Welcome, Marjorie. It's a pleasure to be with you once again, even uh, via Internet this time. And it's wonderful to be with you, Jeffrey. I look forward to our conversation. This is a very exciting topic. Uh, we're talking about Kundalini because, uh, for one thing, I know you've had a deep interest in, in this for, for many years, but it also, I think, dovetails with your professional interest as a neuroscientist. Absolutely. The two seem to go hand in hand for me anyway. <laughs> Let's talk about the uh, research project itself. You administered a questionnaire, a very extensive questionnaire, to hundreds of individuals who reported spiritual awakenings of uh, a kundalini type. That's right. We, in fact, um, gave it to many people, and uh, over the years, this was in the 90s, that actually the... Um, test was given to people, and we had something like about 300 um, or more people actually respond to the kundalini portion of the questionnaire, and that's what we then um, actually um, looked at carefully in terms of the data analysis. I guess it's fair to say right at the outset, not every spiritual awakening fits the pattern of kundalini. That's right, and I think that was an interesting thing to contemplate. If you talk to people in Eastern traditions, they would say that any spiritually transformative awakening would be considered a kundalini awakening. But when you talk to psychologists in the West, first of all, many of them haven't heard of kundalini awakenings, and they say that very many awakenings are caused, for example, by some sort of um, psychological stress in your life, for example, a depression or anxiety that's severe, or again, through meditation as well. But they would probably say that... Um, they would like to at least say that there may be awakenings that aren't energetic, perhaps, whereas there might be energetic awakenings, which are the ones we're really talking about here. I think, for example, viewers who watch uh, the, the hundreds of videos that we have on this channel will experience an awakening uh, largely generated by uh, ideas and thoughts and intellectual awakening. That's right, and I think some people also mentioned that perhaps if a person has an experience of, for example, their grandmother who has just died coming to them, and apparently in either a dream or even in the waking state, it awakens them to the possibility that there's more than our regular life, but it's not really an energetic awakening. It's maybe more of a new insight that helps change their lives. 
Now, many decades ago, I was friendly and even interviewed on the original Thinking Aloud series, Dr. Lee Sinella, who wrote the book Kundalini Psychosis or Transcendence. And uh, he suggested that many Kundalini symptoms uh, could easily be misdiagnosed as, trans, as psycho psychosis, uh, but that it really was not. It was a different syndrome altogether. Yes, and I think when I read that book, I was surprised that what he described, perhaps by the 1970s, seems to be something that is still present today. And I think that was part of the impetus for me to actually want to get this particular set of data published, because I'm hoping that it will help psychologists and medical doctors understand that, in fact, this isn't a psychosis, this isn't pathological, and it's something that actually can help transform a person's life to the better. And if they know that, and they have the right persons to send them to, we actually might turn this particular way of looking at Kundalini awakenings by the medical professionals around to a whole different viewpoint. And, and I gather one of the really striking findings of your survey is that the uh, reports uh, provided by people of these experiences seem to conform very much to the ancient literature on the subject. Yes, and I think I was really um, pleasantly surprised by that because having read those ancient reports, and sometimes you know these are reports from maybe a thousand years ago, even up through various um, meditators and including Christian mystics and Christ really mystics from all traditions. Um, they sound so amazing that you wonder, could this really happen? And then when you give this questionnaire to, you know, 300 plus people that are really from all over the world, on the United States, Canada, Europe, etc., and you find similar sorts of experiences, you say, wow, how can it be that we've kept this covered up in our culture so much so that we don't really talk about these things that are actually phenomenally amazing transformative experiences? Let's begin by talking about what, how the ancient literature describes the Kundalini awakening. Right, and I think that, first of all, it's fascinating to me that when you look at the tantric literature from India, and this would be a text, for example, like the Tantra Loka or the Prachibhinya Hridayam, which are texts from Kashmir, um, from around the 1000s, and then Gupta was one of the um, scholars that wrote these, you find that what they say is happening when the world is created is that this infinite expansive consciousness, out of its own free will and really joy, creates the world so that it can experience itself. But in the process of creating the world, of course, what happens is that one creates diversity. And in creating diversity in individuals, it suddenly loses its awareness within the individual of what it really is, of its infinite unitive nature. And what they say then happens is that all these individual beings within the world that are going around um, ignorant of who they are, and they're lost in a sense of their own individuality. And then what seems to happen at some particular point in an individual's evolution, and really cosmic evolution, is that people spontaneously have an awakening of this energy that has been dormant inside of them, which they call the kundalini energy. And maybe I should take a step back, because they say that the kundalini energy, this energy of the universe, has two forms. One is the form that just makes everything in the universe function. It's the 
part of us that allows our physiological functions to work perfectly. But there's the second aspect, the inner aspect, that they say goes dormant when an individual is created, and then at some particular point in their evolution begins to awaken, and you have this energetic awakening where suddenly you have um, a glimpse or perhaps a really an amazing transformative experience that you are now one with all the people around you, and you have experiences of light, of joy, and that starts a transformation process that then may go on for many, many years where you begin to see the world in a totally different way than you had before. I gather one of the symbols of the, this kundalini energy is, is a snake or serpent. And uh, it, it's ironic because in uh, the Western biblical tradition, the snake is often associated with uh, evil, uh, temptation, maybe even Satan. Well, I think that is interesting, and I think that when you look at the mystical Christian traditions, you often see that the snake is not considered that way, but it's considered a, a symbol of real knowledge. And in fact, I know they say that in the Western um, Greek tradition, of course, the caduceus has um, the snake on it, the um, emblem for the, the medical symbol, really, of healing. And so you believe, you begin to understand that the Greeks seem to understand that beautiful symbol of the kundalini energy being the energy that awakens and transforms and heals us. In fact, the caducus has two intertwined snakes, which is virtually identical to uh, symbology I've seen coming out of uh, the uh, Eastern traditions. Sometimes we forget that Greece and India were awfully close together in terms of people being able to travel back and forth in those years. And so, in fact, I think there was a lot of cross-fertilization of the philosophies of both of them. And it's wonderful when you can begin to see that. In the uh, Eastern traditions, the uh, kundalini energy is thought of uh, as feminine, as a goddess, as shakti. That's right. And I think it's interesting when... You, in fact, look at some of these traditions, again, out of Kashmir, for example, in India. They talk about Shiva as being this potential energy of the universe that would be the universe before it was actually created in a manifest form. And this unitive um, awareness is very, very still, very, very peaceful. And then when that decision is made to actually enjoy um, the uh, creation and um, allow the energy to flow forth, that part of the energy is considered feminine and considered this shakti or this kundalini energy that brings everything into manifestation and causes the whole then functioning and working of the world. And I like that sort of, it's the yin and the yang aspect that you see in China as well, the masculine and feminine aspects, very beautiful. And the other traditional uh, aspect of uh, the kundalini teachings has to do with the chakras, that the rising of, of the serpent through up along the spinal column uh, awakens the uh, different chakras in each chakra. I know that they have very detailed symbologies and mantras and deities, colors and shapes, but, but they all also represent different uh, powers of consciousness. They do, and I think that what was again interesting for me is having read a little bit of that literature, and maybe I'll even take a step back, having had my own awakening of this kundalini energy when I was about 30 years old, and experiencing energy, for example, between my eyes and in the center of my heart that was like a vibratory pulsing energy that was also filled with joy, I was amazed to then find that, in fact, there was a literature that talked about that related to these chakras, and it's like, wow, I had no awareness of that beforehand, but here is the physiological experience, and then here is the historical um, literature on it. So when I then looked at the literature, and again, there are 
often, um, I would say, we often hear in the historical text of seven different um, centers or um, chakras. And again, what a chakra really um, is, is in symbology, it's a wheel that is spinning because that's how the energy feels in these different centers, that it's spinning around with spokes coming out of it, of other energetic channels going through the body. You find that the people in our study, again, our 300 plus people, showed um, very interesting descriptions that were very similar to what we found, again, in these ancient texts and in these um, historical anecdotes of ecstatic beings from various traditions. And I'm thinking, again, wow, it is amazing that it is that common where a person may not even have heard of these things before to suddenly feel this energy moving up their spinal column from like the base of their spine to the crown of their head, and then also subsequently feeling energy in these different centers as they begin to notice transformations in their life feeling um, electrical energy, feeling heat, feeling light, and so often it's associated also with a sense of joy and an absolute bliss that they are amazed about. And I'm, I'm still intrigued about that myself. It's like, how does all of that go together in terms of a real inner understanding of what this energetic phenomenon is about? I know uh, when I was an undergraduate in college, I uh, read Arthur Avalon's book, I think it's called The Serpent Power, about Kundalini energy. And at that time, this is back in the 1960s, nobody had heard about chakras or, or Kundalini. They were totally foreign ideas. But it wasn't only a few years later, I moved to California and started practicing kundalini yoga, which I was drawn to because I had read Arthur Avalon's book, and um, I think that was a pen name by Sir John Woodruff, as I recall. But uh, in any case, the, the language of kundalini, the language of chakras, uh, certainly became part of the uh, California counterculture, and I, I think by now, uh, th these ideas are widely spread uh, throughout our our culture, so uh, one wonders in the massive survey that you uh, sponsored uh, or were engaged in, uh, how many of the participants were already aware of these ideas because they were floating around in the culture. And I'm sure that there was a little bit of both when I really read them talking about their experiences. Some of them had these experiences when they were on the order of like maybe um, teenagers, something like that. And, and some of them had experiences when they were very young, maybe like five or six years of age, um, and didn't know what they were. And I think that this is a difficulty in our culture when a child, for example, says to their parent, you know, either I have um, seen this beautiful light in the room and it entered me or something of that sort, or, you know, I, I left my body and I was watching myself above my, um, from above my bed looking down at my body. The parent says, that was just your imagination. Forget about it. You know, go back to sleep. And they don't want to hear about it. And I think that some of the people talked about how hard it was to integrate those experiences into their lives. It took many, many years because... When they talk to others about it, in a typical cultural community, people don't know what to think about it. They haven't had the experience themselves, and it's considered pathological, of course, by a lot of doctors. And I think that was the, the sad part of this was when we did ask people at the end of the questionnaire whether they had reported this to a doctor and had any input from some sort of a medical professional, literally, I think maybe maybe 40% of the people approximately said, yes, they had. But of those, I think 
something like 80% said that the doctor or nurse or whatever the medical professional was did not have a satisfactory explanation for them, meaning that the doctor or nurse might say, oh, um, that was probably due to some sort of a um, um, chemical that you were um, taking during surgery. Um, and I think one would say it was probably Demerol, or another one says, oh, I think you just need more exercise. You need to get out and, and run or do something like that. Or, oh, that, that those feelings of heat rushing through your body, that's just hot flashes. You must be having premature menopause. And so they said that it was very frustrating that it was only a few medical professionals that had a background, for example, in Jungian psychology or had actually a background with um, talking with people that had near-death experiences who actually could say something relevant to them and let them know that this was a actually beneficial experience. And I think that it's sort of sad, again, that we don't have a broader understanding in our medical training for our medical professionals so that they can really understand it. You did point out in, in your study there seems to be quite a large uh, overlap between people who report the near-death experience and people who report a kundalini awakening. Yes, that's right. And I think it's wonderful that Bruce Grayson had written articles in the past about people with near-death experiences having very, very similar um, awakening experiences and then transformations to people with um, traditional kundalini awakenings. And I think he, he began to show that this is much more of a universal phenomenon when he wrote those papers. And other people since him have also begun looking just a little bit into kundalini awakenings and creating other kundalini scales for kundalini awakenings. And that's begun to help us understand that it's perhaps a quite a widespread phenomenon. And I, I should also say that until I wrote this particular set of data up for publication, I wasn't aware of the work of Steve Taylor, who is a psychologist, PhD in Britain, who has done a lot of work in this area, in an area that I didn't even know about, and that was the number of people who have gone through severe depression and other stressful anxiety um, situations in their lives that seem to have what he calls a dissolution of their own egoic identity through those crises. And out of that dissolution seems to come an incredible sense of stillness within their mind, their mental activity. And out of that stillness comes often an energetic awakening like the Kundalini awakening. Mm -hmm. And I think that's interesting to see what are the many different triggers of a kundalini awakening that might seem disparate at first, and then you begin to see a lot of the commonalities. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, so we have Steve Taylor's view of severe depression causing you to, what he calls it, like your, your house of cards of your egoic structure sort of collapses, and when it collapses, it allows in that stillness a new identity and often a sense of euphoria that that old sense of ego is gone and you realize you're connected with others. Um, the other one, of course, is through intense meditation. And we seem to find the same thing when you're trying to quiet your mind down over a period of months, years, um, meditating an hour or more a day. What seems to be able to happen, again, is that this egoic structure of your brain, in fact, I'll again take a step back and talk about this default mode network in the brain that as a neuroscientist I'm fascinated by. And this default mode network has now been studied by a number of people, um, including, for example, um, Justin Brewer and his colleagues at Yale University Medical School, um, looking at people who meditate, and they found that in experienced meditators, this default mode network 
actually seems to be quite attenuated in its activity. And they do these experiments by putting people into a functional magnetic resonance imaging um, machine, which actually then can record their default mode network activity before meditation and during meditation. And what's interesting to me is that they can compare these data to that of um, Barrett and Griffiths, who are, uh, again, researchers from Johns Hopkins University Medical School, and they show that similar reductions in the default mode network activity occurs in people that are taking psilocybin as part of some of their studies for terminal cancer patients. And they find that, again, it's as if with this default mode network activity being substantially reduced, during these particular events, meditation or psilocybin ingestion, what seems to happen is that the egoic narrative of our mind, the constant chatter about who we are, what we are, our ego identity, all the narratives about our world seems to shut down. And when it shuts down, it seems to allow this unit of awareness, the sense of joy and bliss to come through. And people talk about these experiences as being not only amazing in the moment, but once they have that experience, it seems to begin to create a transformation. It's almost like a seed of transformation is, is actually planted inside of them, and that then gradually transforms the rest of their lives in magnificent ways, including increased creativity, increased senses of altruism, love for their fellow humanity, etc. One of the uh, intriguing findings uh, that I read in your report is that on average, people said it took seven to eight years to integrate uh, this uh, awakening experience into their their lives as a whole. It didn't just happen overnight. Exactly. And I found that also amazing. And in fact, I think there was something like at least 33 people that said they never integrated it into their lives. And my own sense is that that's very similar to what Bruce Grayson and Tim Van Lomo have said about near-death experiences, that they say that it takes quite a while to integrate this into their lives. And they say it's, they believe it's because the medical community, the families, other people in their community don't want them to talk about it. They find it feels abnormal to them. And so they then shut the person down when they try to talk about it. And I'm gathering that it's the same sort of thing that happens when somebody has a kundalini awakening. You could imagine if you are a, what, a, a young person and you tell your grandmother or even your mother, but I mean, it's like, you know, I had this amazing experience of energy shooting up my spine and then I had this experience of like my consciousness leaving the top of my head and I could suddenly see around me and and this was full of joy they would say please <laughs> this, this is not normal and you shouldn't talk to people about it and sometimes people would even say well you know my nearest relatives would say that's interesting but please don't discuss it with others because it can be seen as um pathological, um, and those are the issues that we still face today. So I think that's the issue. How do we make our society such that we can actually help people understand that this is part of a beautiful growth process so that they can integrate it into their lives more fully, more quickly, and perhaps really expand their creative potential as a human being? Well, I would think that uh, one of the ways uh, to integrate this into our society would be if we had mainstream scientific models that could account for it. But I, as far as I know, the, the model of the coiled serpent rising up and awakening all of the chakras is um, 
not really uh, easily mappable onto uh, conventional neuroscience. You're absolutely right, and I think that's always the issue. In fact, just when you use the word energetic awakening, I think most neuroscientists would just, like, roll their eyes. So I really understand that, and I think that's why it's beautiful that people like Judson Brewer at Yale University Medical School and others like um, Barrett and Griffiths at Johns Hopkins are beginning to actually see what changes in the neural networks are associated with these awakenings, and what I like is the fact that it appears that it is a reduction in the activity of these networks that is actually associated with the awakening. And it's my own hypothesis as a neuroscientist and a meditator that what is really happening is that as this default mode network's activity is reduced, it is actually reducing the filters that are in our brain that keep us from experiencing expanded states of awareness. And I think that if you look back at the literature of, for example, William James, our father of psychology back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, he had similar types of hypotheses about what was going on with the spiritual awakening. That there are attentional filters on our brain that are very, very functional in normal everyday life. And without them, we would probably not be able to function normally and deal with all of the activities of life. But they keep us from seeing a broader reality that is truly out there. And certain people spontaneously have those filters begin to simply collapse down for a few moments or longer, and they see something that's a much, much broader, more expansive awareness. And others, through meditation or severe depression or psilocybin, have that same sort of a thing. And it's almost as if once those filters close down for a while and you begin to see this expanded awareness, it almost gives you a a path back to it in the future. It's like you've seen it once, and now you know how to get back there again by quieting your mind down. So I think that when we begin to talk about it in terms of neural correlates and about filters that we can actually perhaps disengage, maybe that's a way for neuroscientists to begin to explore it within our typical medical vision, our viewpoint, our um, vocabulary that we have. I gather from your report that the uh, respondents didn't always have totally beautiful, totally positive experiences. Sometimes, for example, the awakening of Kundalini is, is accompanied by painful sensations. That's right. And I think that that's also um, listed in the literature as well. And I, I should also mention something that is said in the literature from Kashmir in India way back a thousand years ago, and that is that it is very important to have a guide or a teacher when you are working to awaken this energy. And it's because the energy is powerful. And some people, in fact, we have found, and I think Lisa Nella mentioned this in his book, if they misuse meditation by, for example, doing things like meditating eight hours a day, fasting, um, doing a lot of physical activity at the same time, they are not making their physical body strong enough to hold the awakened energy. And so I think that's why it's very important also, not only to have a guide or a teacher, but also to have the um, psychologists in the community be aware of the beauties of this awakening, but also the things that can cause a person to have um, a, a bad experience. A little bit like perhaps with psilocybin, why right now with all of our terminal cancer patient studies, they make sure that there are two um, clinicians and social workers that are with the person during the journey to make sure that this journey is a, a really beneficial and powerfully um, 
good experience rather than one that could turn into one where the person becomes fearful. And I should say that in some of the spontaneous awakenings that I read about again in our study, people found that when it originally began to happen, for example, it might happen in the middle of the night, they would be awakened by this powerful energy moving inside of them. At first they were fearful, and then it seemed that as they just allowed it to happen, this incredible joy began to come forth as well. And so I think part of the fear that some of the people mentioned was it feels so unusual that the, the egoic structure is saying, oh, my God, what is happening to me? And then as they continue to experience it, they begin to see that this expansion has a very joyful component as well. So I think there are two different things probably going on at the same time. You've met my wife, Janelle, and uh, she had a, a Kundalini awakening experience that was troublesome for her. It was very clear to me because she was describing energy moving up and down her spine, but it was... It, it bothered her, and so she she went to a, a yoga ashram. I think it's called the Patanjali Kundalini Yoga Care Ashram in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, which was recommended. And they had a, an 80-year-old guru there from India who seemed to know very well what was happening. They had a detailed system. Uh, I've read their manuals where they talk about all the different ways the goddess Shakti can travel through the body and places where if there's a blockage, the goddess will get stuck inside the body. And that's what causes the discomfort. And, you know, within 24 hours, this guru had completely eliminated uh, the problems that Janelle was having. It's a beautiful example, and thank you for sharing that, Jeffrey, because I know in my own um, meditation tradition, I would hear similar stories that, in fact, somebody would have a spontaneous awakening and be um, very uncomfortable with it for all the reasons that Janelle might have been uncomfortable with it, and they would hear about my own meditation teacher, and they would come to him, and he would then calm the energy down and allow it to move smoothly through their system, and then everything would be fine. And, and I think that, that reminds us that we don't yet understand the energy fully as medical professionals. There are people in these meditation traditions that do have a, a much greater wisdom, but in our um, culture, we have less knowledge, and that's why we may have people with bad experiences. And you're reminding me that if at one point in the future we actually had a medical community that was trained in this type of thing, we could perhaps help people more easily um, when these spontaneous awakenings might take place. Maybe one of the problems is that the uh, traditional uh, kundalini spiritual perspective is not based on a materialistic metaphysics. You're not looking at mechanism in, in the way that you as a neuroscientist would look at it. You're looking at things that are symbolic and, and poetic and even uh, involves sounds and colors and things things that are well outside of uh, conventional scientific thinking. You're right. And in fact, when you think about it, what a lot of people describe, which makes perhaps the psychologist a little bit uneasy, is they say, I'm beginning to like see these beautiful lights around me, or I'm beginning to hear these wonderful inner sounds, I'm beginning to hear this music and other things like that, and so the psychologist says, oh, that's schizophrenia, and they immediately label it as pathological rather than seeing, as I think even William James said, that when you have positive transformation along with these unusual sounds and visions, that is not a sign of pathology, that's a sign of something that is more like a spiritual growth and expansion. So I think that that's the key issue that 
It's literally as if when the filters on the brain are reduced, we have access, I hypothesize anyway, to a broader awareness of sounds, sights, um, experiences of tingling, of other sensations, that a normal five-sensory awareness human being doesn't have. And therefore, if you've never had those experiences, you assume that they can't be normal. But in fact, this is a beneficial type of increase in sensory experience. And you're reminding me that when we actually ask people about transformations in their lives and we ask them about increase in sensitivity to, for example, light, to sound, etc., it was overwhelming how many people had these increases in sensitivity um, throughout all of their, um, their senses. In addition, they had increases in, for example, um, of things that we can't even really explain. They had increased psychic experiences, psychic phenomena happening, for example, where they could tell in advance that somebody was going to be calling them or something was going to happen. And I think it's partly whimsical or humorous one for me is what we hear about with near-death studies as well, that people had these um, influences on electronic instruments that drove everyone around them and themselves crazy. So once again, there's something that we can't explain from our materialist perspective, and that is how is it that now that this awakening has occurred, your body seems to have an energetic component to it that interferes with electrical instruments. Um, and you don't have a lot of control over it either. I mean, so it can be annoying when you're trying to do a recording or you're trying to go to a meeting and the lights are not working in the normal way because all of these people that have had near-death experiences are sitting in the audience. So what can we say? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> now that you mention it, uh, ever since Janelle had her Kundalini experience, she's had more computer problems. <laughs> That's right, and I I wish we could understand that a little bit more. I I think that when we use the word energy, I don't even think we understand specifically what we mean when we talk about the Kundalini energy, and also how it seems to interact with um, the energy from lights. Um, and other technological things that we have. So it, it's, a, it's still a mystery. And I think that's one of the reasons I, first of all, published this paper in the Explore Journal by Elsevier because that is a journal that is indexed on what we call PubMed, which is our national da database of scientific journals, so that scientists will actually be able to find this particular paper easily. And whether they read it or not will depend on their own curiosity. But I think that what we're trying to do is allow this information to get out there more so that we get more people actually doing research in this area to make it um, really something they can understand better. I know you're involved in a uh, project to develop a, a new kind of science, a post-materialist science, which which means that, that people with legitimate materialistic scientific credentials begin to expand their horizons to consider uh, first-person descriptions of, of reality as uh, offering something significant that has been overlooked up until now. That's right. That's the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Materialist Sciences. And I'm the president, and one of the reasons that I was excited when we formed that particular society is that it's really meant to have a core of scientists who are curious and want to see whether there's a way of making our 
current scientific worldview expands to include these phenomena that we're currently calling paranormal, but I think most of us that are in the society believe that they are actually very natural phenomena, and we need to actually get rid of that word paranormal and simply expand our viewpoint beyond materialism to include these energetic phenomena as part of our theory and our model of the, uh, of the world. Yeah, when you consider that, I, I think roughly two-thirds of the population report uh, experiences that are labeled as paranormal, they're actually relatively normal and common. <laughs> exactly. And it's only the fact that in academia, and I have to say, I mean, I was an academic for 40 years until I retired. I was one of them. We are fearful of changing that materialist model because it's been our model for our entire career as academics and as scientists. And I think we simply have to allow curiosity to take over so that we begin to actually really ask the question, could this be possible? And let me do the experiment to find out if this particular phenomenon we call paranormal actually is something that can be substantiated very, very clearly. And of course, as you and I know, there have been many studies like that um, by scientists showing that these are quite um, substantiated, and yet still our normal scientific community doesn't want to even look at those journal papers. It's a very un very interesting set of circumstances where we wear certain blinders in academia where we just don't want to ask those questions. When I consider the uh, kundalini descriptions of chakras and nadis and koshas and uh, d different kinds of energy uh, one would be tempted to try and, and map it out to find some sort of one-to-one -one correlation with what we know about the lymphatic system or the uh, flow of blood or the neurons or uh, the uh, endocrine glands, or that there might be some sort of uh, possible mapping, but I... I I'm guessing that you as a neuroscientist have, have tried to suss that out yourself. Well, in fact, there are people doing that. If you look at the literature again, for example, when you look at um, the Chinese medicine perspective on, for example, meridians with acupuncture, they are talking about the same sorts of energetic channels through the body, and they have their own mapping of the channels. And I should say from looking at the literature on the success of acupuncture, it is quite successful in many, many different areas of medicine. Now, once again, Many doctors would just put that aside and say, no, that's impossible. But in fact, we now have more and more centers of integrative medicine in our own country in the United States. Um, at places like Stanford or Harvard or Yale, where um, they are beginning to accept that these are in fact good ways to complement Western medicine. And in fact, the literature shows that they work. And I'm so amazed when I was looking at a particular paper from Yale University Medical School um, of using Reiki, which is, again, an energetic form of healing, on cardiac patients, and they showed that there was definitely a significant difference between using Reiki and using a control group. And the Reiki group was just as effective as using the pharmaceutical called propanolol. Um, in actually making the heart rate variability come back much more to normal. And I would much rather take Reiki than take a drug with side effects if it, I were a patient with some sort of cardiac problem. So I think that there is an opening. Um, I think a lot of medical schools are really realizing that patients want to have access to these forms of complementary medicine along with the traditional medicine. And I think that's helping. I'm pretty sure that these methods work. As I mentioned, uh, they work 
remarkably well with with my wife, and uh, I have numerous accounts of people who have experienced uncanny forms of of healing in in ways that can't be explained by conventional uh, science. So I think the idea that our universities and medical schools are open to alternative worldviews is is very important because. I am under the impression that if we limit ourselves to the conventional medical neurological models that we now have, we're we're just missing 90% of of the picture. It's really a question of uh, expanding our conventional view and not trying to squeeze these other alternative approaches uh, to make them fit our models. Yes, I totally agree, and I'm, again, hoping that that expansion is really in, it, in its um, beginning phases of really um, working its way outward as I see more scientists willing, at least in private, to admit that they believe this is true. In public, they're a little bit afraid of perhaps the tenure process or getting a publication accepted, a certain amount of credibility, but they will tell you in private that they actually believe all this is true. And I think that means that little by little, we are changing people's true understanding of, of really how the universe functions and that this energetic component is critical to our understanding of our nature of, as human beings. Well, I'm hopeful that uh, if, if we were able to see uh, uh, or have a conversation like this, let's say 100, 200 years from now, people will have a, a much different worldview that our, our Western uh, institutions won't be so uh, dogmatic and rigid about these things. One thing you're just reminding me about as well is that I do interact now with scholars that are in, for example, um, universities like Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, who are looking at a lot of these ancient texts from India, and they are then talking about um, in modern language now that we can understand, for example, as a neuroscientist, what they believe is happening when what begins to have an awakening of this sort. And I'm hoping that in the future we can have more dialogues between people that are studying these ancient texts but are now members of our modern academic institutions and say, how can we actually maybe write a neurophysiological um, book that might begin to say, how could these two points of view actually interdigitate better, really go together to help us have a better understanding of our nature as human beings? That's why I do these interviews, because there's always something new uh, coming down the chute. Marjorie Willicott, this has been a delightful conversation, an important one, for, especially for people who are having these experiences and wonder what's going on. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.